If you have your Bibles, let me invite you to open up to James chapter 2. It's found on page 1012 in the Pew Bible that's in the rack in front of you. While you're turning there, let me remind you that we are going through the book of James and we are now into sermon number four and just give you a few reminders about the person and the context that this book was written. Remember that James most likely was the half-brother of Jesus, that he was a leader of the church in Jerusalem, that he literally pastored thousands. James was especially known to be a very godly man, especially in his prayer life. It is said that his knees were calloused and that they were like a camel's because he spent so much time on them before the Lord. His letter, James, is addressed to professed Christians who were suffering persecution, most likely mentioned in Acts chapter 12. And James himself, according to Eusebius, was martyred in AD 62 by a club. This is the man who writes these words to us under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. So let us give our attention to the reading of God's word, beginning in verse 18. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness, and he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way. For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, this is our prayer, that we would approach your word on bended knee, and our earnest plea would be that we would see the love of Christ in such a convincing way that we would leave here transformed and changed for this week and for all of eternity. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. So an important question this morning in December or at Christmas time, do you go to the farm or to the attic to get your Christmas tree? Just a few short decades ago, you really only had two choices. You could either get a real pine tree or a real fir tree. But in the 1930s, that all changed, and you are never going to look at your artificial Christmas tree the same. In the 1930s, there was a company, the Addis, Addis Brush Company, and they made toilet bowl brushes. And they used the same manufacturing pro, uh, process as well as the exact same hairs that they would use on a toilet brush and dyed them green to create the artificial Christmas tree. And now... We have that great debate. Are you going to have an artificial, a fake, or are you going to have a real Christmas tree? You can tell my leaning. (laughs) 
You can also uh, know that I am constantly confused because I really even can't tell the difference between a fake or a uh, real Christmas tree anymore. You know, they even make that squirt smell that you can spray on the Christmas tree. So now it smells like a real tree. So it's really hard to tell the difference between a real tree and a fake Christmas tree. James, in chapter 2, is describing for us two different kinds of faith. He's describing fake faith and real faith, what we might call hypocritical faith and authentic faith, what he would call in this passage dead faith and live faith. And in verse 18, he tells us that there are these two different types of faith. The living faith is going to have active works, and the dead, the fake faith, is going to have no fruit. And I want you to remember that James is addressing people professing to be Christians, but are evidencing no fruit in their lives. And I think it's important that we examine this question today, that we do not simply identify ourselves as Christians because of our heritage or because of our family, or even simply because at one time in our life we prayed a prayer or we were put on the membership role of a church. I think there's something more compelling here that James, James wants us to consider, that when we become a Christian, it is not simply like choosing which discount warehouse we're going to choose, whether it's going to be BJ's or Costco. But when you become a believer, it is through the work of the Spirit that convinces you that you are a sinner before a holy God and that Jesus is beautiful and the righteousness he has achieved for us is imputed to us by faith so that we are utterly compelled to go to Christ because we can go nowhere else. And James says, if you have this living faith, if you have really met the living Jesus then your life will be different. Things will change. You will be transformed in the way that you think. And so James is asking us several rhetorical questions about this dead faith. He does it earlier in verse 14, which we didn't read. What good is it, my brother, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? And then he asks another rhetorical question. Can that faith save him? And James's answer is certainly not. That dead faith has no power to salvation. He calls it useless. And he says we are foolish if we cling to dead faith. So I think the question that James had for his original audience and the question that we need to consider this morning is a question about our own faith. Is it living or is it dead? Is it real or is it fake? And I want to do this in two parts. First, I'm going to give you a warning. And second, I'm going to give you an encouragement, uh, an encouragement and two different witnesses that illustrate this encouragement. But first, if James were here, the thing that James would remind me to do before giving this hard word, this hard word of warning, he would say, make sure and smile. (laughs) 
You see, my natural face is a scowl, and James's natural face is a smile. And so I even have this affectionate name for James, and I know I'm going to get in trouble if he goes back and watches the live stream. But my nickname for James is the Velvet Brick. And the reason that I call him the Velvet Brick is because he says hard things, and we say, thank you, that was so good. And he can do that, one, because he's smiling, two, because he has a beautiful Scottish accent, and three, because James gets the gospel. And we are so fortunate to have him as our senior pastor, and it's a sacrifice for our church when he is away uh, serving the kingdom, but it is also a great privilege for others to hear him preach the gospel. So I want to remember to make sure and smile during this hard warning since I don't have a beautiful Scottish accent. And you know it's true because James could read the phone book and all of you would be mesmerized. (laughs) So I'm going to say some hard things first. And the first warning is this. James says that dead faith will only have knowledge and truth. Where do we get this? James says that you believe that God is one, but even the demons believe this and shudder. James was referencing Deuteronomy 6.4 that these professing Jews would have recited on a daily basis that said, Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God. The Lord is one. If you recited this on a daily basis, you were considered orthodox. You were making a statement that uh, your religion is monotheistic, that there is only one God. And James is saying that you can affirm that God is one. You can affirm that Jesus is God's unique son. You can even affirm that salvation is by grace through faith alone, that Jesus died, was buried, and rose again, that he atoned for our sins on the cross that he ascended into heaven, that he currently sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. You can even name all the books of the Bible in order, even get all the minor prophets correct, their pronunciation and their spelling. You can name all the kings in the Old Testament, in Israel and Judah, in chronological order. And not only will your biblical theology be perfect, your systematic theology can be perfect. You can explain the Trinity, at least in biblical terms. You can explain covenants. You can explain the attributes of God. You can explain the Christology of Jesus. You can explain the work of the Holy Spirit, and you might even know a big word like eschatology that means last things. And then you might say, but it's different for me than from a demon. Because a demon knows all of these same things. You will say, I know all those things but I affirm that they are true. And James would say, demons believe all of these things are true as well. They believe, they know that God exists. They know that the Bible is the word of God. They would even affirm the historical uh, existence of Jesus and the, the reality of the resurrection and the empty tomb. James would say, even the demons have this same knowledge and truth. They have been to the greatest seminary in the world. They have been in the throne room. And they are utterly convinced about the truth of these things. And they have greater knowledge than most of us would have in this room. 
Well, then you might say, well, they have knowledge and they believe that it's true, but I feel it. And when I think about punishment for my sins, I am scared and I am full of fear of the holiness and wrath of God. Pay attention. What does he say about the demons? They believe in what? And shudder. Do you know what that means? It means that they bristle and they tremble. Every time that Jesus encounters a demon in the gospel, they cry out saying, What have you to do with us, O Son of God? They tremble before the Lord and they acknowledge that He is the unique Son of God. Do you realize that a demon can recite and affirm every part of the Apostles' Creed except for two words? Do you know what those two words are? I believe. Realize this, James says, demons have more informed faith than us. Demons tremble at the power of God more than us. And so many of us may have simply run to Jesus at one time in our lives. And James wants us to evaluate this to make sure that we are producing faith or fruit in our lives because we have really encountered the living Son of God. Tim Keller puts it this way. He says, It is very possible for human beings to know that God is great, to believe that God is great, to be scared of punishment, to be afraid that they'll be punished, and to even alter your behavior and become a very moral person, even an incredibly moral person, even an incredibly religious person. And all of your religion and all of your morality is nothing but shuddering and no different than the demons. If you do not evidence faith, then you may not possess true faith. You may just simply be a nice person. You may be sanitized. You may have religion without reality. And James says that type of faith is useless. I told you, it's a hard but a compassionate word, smile. (laughs) So what am I saying? That knowledge and truth are of no good to us? No. Look at what James says in verse 19. He says, you do well to believe in God, to have knowledge and truth. Understand this. Knowledge and truth are both necessary unto salvation, but neither is enough. Living faith will have more than knowledge and trust. And that's the second point this morning. James encourages us that living faith will also have trust and works. James summarizes this. Look down at verse 24 when he writes, You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. James is telling his original audience that the way to tell if you have living faith is that your life will demonstrate an active life of trust and obedience and will produce good works. Now, if you've been paying attention to the liturgy today, or you've read Romans before, or you've read Galatians, you may wonder if James is contradicting Paul, or if Paul is contradicting James, because listen to what Paul says in Romans chapter 3, verse 28. He says, one is justified by faith, apart from, without works of the law. So which is it? Is Paul or James correct? 
Did we finally find the contradiction in the Bible that proves that it is not inerrant, that it's not infallible, and we should just close this up and we'll see you never again? No, that's not the answer. Paul and James most definitely agree. So absolutely not. They do not contradict each other. Now, if you don't want to just take my word for it, pay attention. I've got five reasons to compel you why they are preaching the same gospel. If you don't need this convincing, then you can zone out and think about lunch for five minutes, and I'll bring you back in in just a minute. So let me give you five reasons why we believe, why we know that James and Paul are preaching the same gospel. First, I want to remind you of this. James and Paul, they knew each other. They were contemporaries. In Acts chapter 15, they actually met together. And Galatians 1 and 2 talks about this meeting. Paul tells us in Galatians, I set before them, them being the leaders of the church at Jerusalem, the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles in order to make sure I was not running or had not run in vain. And the result of the examination is in chapter 2, verse 6, that those who seemed to be influential added nothing to me. Now listen to, to who those people were. And that James and Cephas and John gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me. You understand what's being said here? Paul and James got together regularly in the Acts of the Apostles. We are actually told that they got together more than once. And they knew that they preached the same gospel. They were not in disagreement. And Paul would make long journeys to go and spend time with James because he was one of the leaders of the church. They were really good friends. So understand that. The second thing that I want you to see is this. James is intentionally trying to get our attention. James has some elements of being wisdom literature. So he uses literary devices like paradoxes to wake us up. So for example, in James 1-2, when he says, count it all joy when you face suffering and tribulation. What? When life is hard, I want you to be joyful? There's a paradox there. And so James is intentionally using the words of Paul to draw attention to what he's about to say to make sure that he has our attention. He assumes that his readers are going to be familiar with Paul's formulation of the doctrine of justification by faith alone. Third, the third reason why they are in agreement is this. Each addresses a different concern. Who is Paul addressing in the letter to the Galatians? He is addressing new converts who want to know what they have to be what they have to do to be saved. That is, by grace, through faith alone. And then some have come on the scene saying, in addition to this, though, you must be circumcised and you need to follow the dietary laws. And Paul says, absolutely not. You are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Now, who is James writing to? James is writing to professed believers, highly religious people, but who are evidencing no fruit in their lives. They are professed Christians, but they are living like practical atheists. One pastor illustrated it this way, at this seemingly contradiction. He said, imagine if you went to a doctor's office and you were sitting in the waiting room. 
and you saw the doctor take two patients back. He put one in one room, he put the other patient in another room, and then you overheard the advice that he gave to each patient. The one patient, you heard the doctor tell him that you need to exercise more. You need to be active. You need to get off of your feet. And then imagine the doctor went to the next room, and you overheard what the doctor said to the other patient. And he told this patient, you need to get off your feet. You need to stop exercising. You need to sit down more. Now, did the doctor just contradict what he said? Absolutely not. Do you know why? Because the one patient in this room was obese and needed to lose weight and become healthy. They needed to become active. The other patient had a broken leg, and they needed to get off their leg in order to be healed. It's not a contradiction because each of the patients are different. When you consider the patients in the letter that James writes and the patients that uh, Paul addresses in Galatians, they have a different concern. The fourth reason, James is not comparing faith to works, but he is comparing real faith with artificial faith. And if you were to read all of Romans and all of Galatians and all of James, you would see that they are teaching the same gospel. Paul, in Romans 4 and Romans 5, explores the beauty of this gospel that we are justified by faith alone. And then immediately in chapter 6, he asks this question. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? And he says, by no means. How can he who died to sin still live in it? He goes on further to say that we who have been united to Christ in his death and resurrection walk in the newness of life, that our old self has been crucified and we are no longer enslaved to sin. And Romans 5.22 summarizes this. But now that you have been set free from sins and become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. And then in Galatians, Paul explains this beautiful gospel But then do you also know in Galatians, that's where we get the fruits of the Spirit. And Paul says, do not walk according to the flesh, but walk according to the Spirit. And what are those fruits? It's love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And Paul says to walk by the Spirit is to bear one another's burdens. And James preaches this gospel as well in his letter when he says what? We are heirs of salvation. We have inherited eternal life. We have not worked for our eternal life. So they are preaching the same gospel. And then fifth, this is the last thing I want us to consider when it comes to uh, this issue of faith and works. I want you to look carefully at the word justified. Justified has two meanings in its original context. We're used to this, right? We use the word awful. What does awful mean now? It means terrible. What did awful mean in its original context? It meant full of awe, A-W-E. Two different meanings, the same word. The same way this word justified is used in, with two different meanings in the New Testament. In one sense, it can mean acquittal, like in a courtroom. And in another sense, it can mean vindication or to verify. So when Paul says 
that we are justified by faith, he is meaning acquittal. He means that we cannot be made right with God except through the merits of Jesus Christ and the works of Jesus Christ. It has to be done through him, and his righteousness is imputed to us so that we are no longer guilty because he has paid for the wages of sin, which is death. So Paul is using justified in this first sense, meaning acquittal. When James says we're justified by works, he means it's our works that prove we're right with God. All right, now I'm going to preach. I worked hard on this, so listen. One means to declare righteous, and the other means to demonstrate as righteous. One means to pronounce righteous, the other means to prove righteous. One emphasizes the root of salvation, and the other the fruit of salvation. Paul is dealing with declaration, and James is dealing with demonstration. What he's saying is you're justified by your works. You're proven to be saved by your works. Good works are not the grounds of grace, but they are grounded in grace. Good works are not a condition, but a consequence of salvation. Amen? Amen. And by the way, none of those are original. I ripped them off of seven commentaries in the library, but they're good. (laughs) What I want you to see, zone back in here, is that James and Paul are both describing the same living faith And perhaps it's best summarized by the protege of Martin Luther, Philip Melanchthon, when he said, we are saved by faith alone, but not by a faith that remains alone. And since I gave James a hard time earlier about his beautiful Scottish accent, hi James, um, I want to quote from a Scottish Presbyterian on his commentary on James, who summarizes, he says, the great cardinal doctrine that justification is by faith alone was beyond reasonable question, well known, and fully received by the readers of this epistle, James. So I hope you can see that James and Paul are in agreement. Those are five reasons why there are more, but those are all the ones that I have time to highlight for you this morning. What does James do to illustrate and to bear witness to this truth? He gives us two biblical characters, Abraham and Rahab. Let's look briefly at those. Abraham In verse 23, it is said that he believed God and it was counted him as righteousness. What is that verse referencing? It's referencing Genesis chapter 15, 6, when God made a promise to Abram that he was going to bless the world through his seed. You see, Abraham and his wife were childless. And at this time, Abram was 75 years old and his wife was 65. And they would actually have to wait until he was 100 and Sarah was 90 before they had a son. But God made this promise to Abraham and Abraham believed and it was credited to him as righteousness. And then what James says in this letter, later in his life, about 40 years later, after his son Isaac had been born, God came to him again and said, I want you to sacrifice your son. That's a beautiful, hard story that we don't have time to go into, but it, it, it pre-shadows that God would give his own son for us. But he was called to sacrifice his son Isaac, and he willingly obeyed, and God provided a substitute. You see, the case that James is making is that he already possessed salvation in Genesis 15, and he proved his salvation in Genesis 22. So he was counted righteous, 
And then his faith was completed by the fruit in his life. And he was a friend of God. The second witness that James gives us is Rahab in verse 25. It says, She received the messengers, and she sent them out another way. You may or may not remember the story of Rahab in Joshua 2 through 6. Joshua and the Israelites were coming to conquer the promised land, and they had a really big problem called Jericho. And so Joshua sent spies into the city of Jericho to scout it out. And they thought they would be wise and shrewd by hiding out uh, in a prostitute's home because that was Rahab's profession. They reasoned that uh, folks would be accustomed to seeing strangers enter her home. And her home was also on the outer wall. So they thought they were being shrewd. But the king of Jericho found out about it. And he sent soldiers and Rahab hid the spies and helped them escape. And James is saying that proves her faith. But I want you to go back and listen. In Joshua chapter 2, 9 through 11, this is what she believed long before she evidenced this fruit in her life. She said this when the spies arrived, I know that the Lord has given you the land and that the fear of you has fallen upon us and that all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt, and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites. Now listen, and as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted, and there was no spirit left in any man because of you. Now listen to her declaration, her confession. For the Lord your God, he is God in the heavens, above and on the earth beneath. She professed faith in Christ, and then she proved her faith in Christ by helping the spies escape. Her life started changing. She wasn't perfect, but her life was different. So what does all this mean for us? Three quick applications to our lives. The first is this. If we have a living faith, it means that God's family is going to include patriarchs and prostitutes. Abraham, the father of our faith, And Rahab, on the far end of the social spectrum. Abraham was a wise Chaldean, and she was a Gentile, a Canaanite. Abraham was a powerful leader, and she was an ill-repute citizen. Yet Rahab's past was no barrier to her faith. You see, this is the problem with religion. Religion tells you, be a good person and save yourself. And if you're like Rahab, and if you're like me, and you know that you are bad, that you are a sinner, what hope do you have before a holy God when he asks you, why should I let you into my heaven? What would Rahab say? Because I'm a good prostitute? What can her answer be, her only answer be? I am a sinner, but I have placed my faith in the Lord of heaven and earth. You can do nothing to earn your salvation. The only thing that we can earn by our works is eternal separation from God. You see, it's incredible. And what we need to remember, the church is not a club of people who have it all sorted out and are perfect in our good works. That would be like saying a hospital is just for doctors and not for patients. The church is a refuge for those who have been rescued. It's for patriarchs 
and prostitutes. Second point of application is this. God's family members will have various degrees of knowledge and truth. Look at the knowledge of Abraham. He walked and he talked with God. Look at the basic knowledge of Rahab. Remember that it's not the quality of, or the quantity of our faith that saves us, but it's the object of our faith. And yes, we have to know a bare minimum and that all Scripture is profitable, but not all Scripture is necessary for salvation. But we will want to learn more and more about the God who loves us and saves us. So remember, we're all going to have various degrees of knowledge. And remember this, we're all going to have various degrees of growth. We're going to be sanctified at different speeds. had one pastor who told me that sanctification is more like a crock pot. It takes a long time than a microwave. And look at the life of Abraham. When he believed in Genesis 15, he was credited as righteous. And 40 years later, approximately, he proved his faith. But do you remember some of the things that happened in between those two events? Do you remember that he doubted God's promise? That he sought to have an heir through his, uh, his wife's maidservant? That he had Ishmael? He committed adultery. There are going to be times that we struggle and that we stumble as Christians. God's family members will have various degrees of knowledge and growth. And the question we need to ask ourselves is, do we have a desire to be holy And are we making war against our sin, responding with repentance and faith? And the third and final application for us is this, is that God's family members will love and serve one another. And this is really the whole message of James, that if we have expressed true faith, that if we have a living faith, it will be evident in the way that we love one another And we love the Lord our God. It means we will sacrifice for one another. It means we will obey when it is costly and live courageously. Think about Rahab. When she hid the spies, if she would have been discovered, she would have paid for her life. What led her to be able to do that? It was because she knew the Lord was powerful. He was mighty. All of these exhortations that James gives us to watch our tongue, to care about mercy and justice and widows and orphans. Do you know why? He tells us this because if we ourselves know we are orphans, if we ourselves know that we are helpless and we experience that we have been adopted and that he has helped us, And that instead of speaking words of condemnation, he has spoken words of life to us. When we experience that, we will demonstrate that to a watching world. And our faith will be evident. True faith will not allow us to walk through life without caring and ministering for one another, reflecting the character of God and the story of the gospel. Let me summarize the whole sermon in this way. It is not enough to know that Jesus is a Savior, that He lived, died, and rose again for the atonement of sins. He must be your Savior. It must be personal. There must be an active trust in the God of the universe who has sent His Son, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross for our sins. Concluding thought. I don't want you to hear this and think, oh man, 
I feel so bad. I've got to walk out and try so much harder. But I do want you to examine your faith and ask three questions. And if you were to come a- answer these three questions to me, if I were to say, are you a Christian? The primary thing that would distinguish you as a Christian is this. Do you believe in Jesus? Do you trust in him alone, by grace, through faith, in Christ alone for your salvation? And then you say, well, I'm not so sure. The second question I would ask you is this. Has the gospel impacted and changed your life in some way? Now, if you struggle to answer that, I think that you ought to spend some time in reflection. But some of you might say, I believe in Jesus. The gospel has impacted my life, but I'm really struggling right now. Let me offer a word of encouragement to you. We have a promise in Scripture that the God who justifies us will also sanctify us. And the God who justifies us and sanctifies us will also glorify us. Sinners, here is your great hope. Every sinner who trusts in Christ alone, by faith alone, will become a saint. You cannot get off that train of God sanctifying you And one day, someday, you will be perfect. How do we know this? We know this because the tomb is empty. We know this because the same power that resurrected Christ from the grave is the same power that is at work within us. So, be hopeful, be joyful, because he who began a good work in you will complete it. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, this is a hard word, and Lord, we do pray that for those who need to be disturbed, this word of warning would disturb our hearts and our minds. And yet, Lord, there are many of us here who who need to be encouraged that we might evidence the love that we have experienced in Christ by displaying love to one another. So, Lord, encourage us to do this. And Father, we pray that you would allow us to make Jesus famous by the way that we love one another through the power of the Holy Spirit, the same power that resurrected Christ from the grave. In Jesus' name, amen.